We at the WBDC dedicate our Raising Up the Vote campaign and Make Your Mark podcast series in memory of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a woman whose legacy for justice, equity, and women's rights lives on. Raise your hands up! Raise them up! Welcome to the Make Your Mark podcast series, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Women, Voting, and Equality, a WBDC interview series where influential women share their glass ceiling stories, how they fought for their voice and rights, became civically engaged, and changed the status quo. In today's episode, Breaking the Glass Ceiling Corner Office, we'll explore how women business owners are a catalyst for driving women's civic engagement and economic empowerment, both inside their organizations as well as within their communities. Today, we're going to talk with Joanna Sobrin, founder and CEO of MXO Tech, as well as Stephanie Hickman, who is president and CEO of Trice Construction Company. My name's Ellen Sherberg. I'm special advisor to the CEO at American City Business Journals. I'm going to be the host for today's conversation. I'd really like to cover three major areas with each of you. First, a little background on your own leadership journey. Then, it would be helpful to understand why you think it's important for women to vote. And finally, I'd like to talk about how you create a voting culture both in your organization and in your communities, and what barriers you face and what barriers you think other women face. If there's some time, it would be great to get your suggestions on what the rest of us can do to get women to vote. So first of all, Stephanie, can you tell us about your leadership journey and how you became the CEO of a construction company in Chicago? Well, thank you, Ellen. I'm I'm delighted to be here today along with uh, Joanna. Um, I've had a pretty circuitous route for my journey. I'm an attorney by training, and I spent time as a utility executive uh, before I took on the family business. So I'm actually fourth generation in construction. Uh, my great-grandfather, Hickman, my great-grandfather Trice, were involved in construction business way back in the late 1800s, and that's as much as we can document. Uh, So in my role uh, working in uh, the local utility, I was um, part of the leadership team and uh, was sitting in a meeting one day when there was a discussion about concrete and how much concrete um, spend there was in the organization. And my family had done concrete construction for 40 years almost at that point. Uh, So kind of a light bulb went off over my head and I'm thinking maybe I'm in the wrong place and there's a different opportunity for me. So I started planning, thinking about what that would look like. And in the meantime, uh, my uncles who were the uh, surviving group of who started the business, my dad and uncles in 1967, uh, they were planning to um, retire. And they had a really clear exit strategy, which was called cease operations. And I asked them, hey, take a quick time out. Don't close it down yet. I may be coming. Uh, So I left uh, my corporate position at the end of 2006 and uh, bought what was left of my family's construction business. And uh, we started a rebuild. Uh, Though it was a 40-year-old business, 
there had been no revenue in uh, in the year prior to my acquisition of it. Uh, so I pretty much had a startup on my hand, but it really was a 20 year, uh, 40 year head start uh, because there was a good name and good reputation in the industry uh, that my family had established over those 40 years. So we spent these last uh, 13 years um, transforming from what had been a small residential construction company, you know, think sidewalks and patios at your home, the garage slab uh, behind your house. And uh, we've moved now, uh, we're utility infrastructure contractor uh, doing work for um, most of the major utilities in Illinois, uh, as well as in the St. Louis area. Uh, and we're doing uh, substations and underground manholes, and we're providing foundations for uh, key projects in and around the city of Chicago. Still concrete? Still concrete, primarily. We've, we've branched out a little bit into a little more civil construction where we'll do excavation but it's definitely um, not a place where people are accustomed to seeing women work. It focuses on our commitment to communities as well and making opportunities available and hiring workforce locally and in the communities that we serve. Stephanie, can you talk a little bit about what your workforce looks like? Who are the people who make up Trice Construction? So our workforce is uh, made up primarily of skilled tradespeople. So we've got carpenters, we've got laborers, we've got people who operate heavy equipment, uh, cement masons. And, you know, this is a male dominated uh, environment uh, that we work in, but we've uh, made a point that we're hiring women in, in those positions as well. We've sponsored women into the unions. That's been important for me. So, you know, you go out to a job site, and you're always, at least I am, I'm always counting how many women are on this job site. How many faces of color do I see? Uh, so our workforce is about 80% diverse uh, in terms of racial diversity. Not as, as, as strong as I'd like it to be uh, with women. So this is a mission uh, for me to try to get more women into the trades. Joanna, can you talk about your leadership journey and how you founded your company, what led to it? Absolutely. Uh, Stephanie, that was a beautiful story. I love just listening to that. Um, thank you for the inspiration to what I'm about to say. So, you know, I, I grew up in Poland, actually, and uh, I was 11 years old when I came here and I didn't speak a word of English. I saw my mother babysitting kids and cleaning houses and toilets and you know, I just, while that was something she had to do to provide for us, it wasn't necessarily my journey. And um, when I was working at a country club at 19 years old, when I graduated high school, um, I started working for two very successful women that led a healthcare company. And I just fell in love with the way that they dressed up. You know, it's a typical young girl, right? You see someone in high heels and really nice suits and you say to yourself, wow, I'd love to be that one day instead of having to clean toilets. And so um, I never forgot the image. I worked there for six years. Uh, the company was sold. And so I had to go work somewhere else and I found a job in tech. Um, but I never forgot how these two women built the culture 
and how they built a successful business, provided job opportunities, and all the things that I thought I would be really passionate about. And so um, after another six years of working for a tech company, I decided that I'm going to try this. I'm going to do what Linda and Joan did and see if it works out. I saved enough money to uh, provide an income for myself and my daughter, Hannah, that was just born for a year. And I thought to myself, well, if I fail, I'm just going to go get another job working for a tech company being in sales. And lo and behold, I generated $411,000 in revenue my first year. Um, my old bosses helped me get an opportunity working for a big um, health insurance carrier here in Illinois doing uh, custom software development. And uh, some of my other clients that I found just through networking, doing our IT managed services. And so um, that's how I really began my journey. And, and what was kind of like fun and silly is that I started my office out of my home and obviously there was no pandemic going on and everybody else had offices, right? Uh, I had this African gray parrot and she would scream all day and she started to pick up uh, learning, uh, you know, the phone ringing and, you know, my messaging. And so it was really a, a kind of obnoxious and, and difficult for me to make sales calls and try to grow my business. And so um, I was walking down the block with my daughter, Hannah, and I said, God, if I could just have an office, right, all I need is a window and a bathroom and just a little space. And I found this little tiny sign that says for rent. And, and this guy from Mercy Home from Boys and Girls picked up and and, and I said, hey, you know, is, is this office available? And he said, yeah, but it's really small. However, it has a window and um, a bathroom. And I thought, wow, like who, you know, I'm moving, you can't see me now, but I'm moving my head up saying somebody's <laughs> listening, okay? And, uh, and so that's how I began my first office that's now expanded to 30 people and, uh, you know, been able to grow the company to a $5 million business, so. That's my story <laughs> in a nutshell. It's amazing. It's a great story. Those 30 people, can you tell us who they are? Absolutely. Um, so we have, I've always been very, very conscious, you know, about hiring people and giving people opportunities. And that's so dear to my heart because so many people, I cannot tell you, gave me opportunities to be where I'm at, right? I was like this kid who got picked on, didn't speak any English. Um, parents didn't have the career that, um, you know, some parents could, some children could see and kind of feed off of. So um, really, I was sort of raised by a community of individuals. And I always said to myself, consciously, subconsciously, that I want to give opportunities to people. So um, I, I hire a lot of women and uh, people of all kinds of backgrounds. And I and it's not by accident, right? Like I haven't just waited for them to come to me. I've actually partnered up with organizations like Upwardly Global, where we hire, where they bring in refugees and help them get jobs here in the United States. Um, another organization is called Europe, where we help um, young people from underserved communities, right? And that requires us to have a training program and help them. Um, so that's been a big thing. In addition to that, you know, I've really done a big outreach 
and focused our um, sales and marketing efforts on women-owned businesses as well. So I have some stats for you later that I want to share, but um, we, we have a big um, culture. We are an IT company, so um, it's very male-dominated. And so that's really driven me to take a lot of effort to go out and get other individuals that may not be um, naturally going towards that space that maybe needs somebody to help mentor them, guide them, approach them, work with them, train them. Do you want to share your stats about women-owned businesses? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Because I think that'll set up the entire conversation and it's really why each of you is here. All right. So um, before this podcast, you know, I was, uh, you you sort of challenged me a little bit and I was asking myself, where are we at MXO in terms of, um, you know, our our clients, our employees? And so we have a total of 58 customers and out of those 58 customers through our, not again, not by accident, but through our efforts, 25 of them are led and or owned by women, CEOs or directors. Um, And I say led or owned because we do a lot of work with nonprofits, right? So we work with like Greater Chicago Food Depository, which is just an amazing organization. And that's led by a woman. Um, Primo Center, which is, you know, for women with children is also led by a woman that's the CEO and executive director. And there's just a handful of companies that that are owned by women. And so 43% of our client base is led and owned by women, which, you know, that makes me really proud in in many ways, because um, I think we, you know, live and, and, and will and continue and have in a very male dominated world. And, and I love surrounding myself and, and those women amongst each other. That's why we do a women's soiree um, party every year on my rooftop, not this year, a client appreciation party to bring all those women together to really grow and help each other succeed. Um, and, and, you know, for me, I can understand their needs and what they need from a technology standpoint, but also from a customer service standpoint. And and just even now during the pandemic, some of my women have reached out for me for various reasons. And, and I have to sort of go back to the, you know, the team of the guys and be like, sorry, I know that's not on the docket or I know that's not part of our process, but we got to do this for our fellow ladies here. Stephanie, I bet your workforce, your workforce excuse me, I bet your customers look a little different. They do. They do. So we work with, uh, you know, a couple of Fortune 100 companies and, you know, through the utilities, you know, they're all corporate organizations and the large general contractors. So, so it is a very, very different uh, market for us in terms of who our customers are, but where we have opportunity um, is with our providers, our subcontractors, our vendors that we do work with. So, you know, from a professional services perspective, it was very important to me to have women involved in that. So our corporate counsel is uh, an African-American woman. The same for our our risk management. Uh, It's a firm that's led by an African-American woman. Uh, And for a long time, 
um, my banker, an African-American woman. And but even on some of the specialty trades that we use uh, subcontractors on our jobs, uh, we look to women owned companies uh, to provide support for us on our projects. So whether it's um, rebar installation or uh, trucks for concrete pumping, uh, even trucking firms, we you know, make it a point to to seek out those kind of companies for our spend uh, within you know, the terms of the business that we do. So, you know, Joanna, you know, made an excellent point about, you know, how to engage other businesses, because this is, you know, this is um, uh, an effort by addition and not subtraction. So the fact that, you know, somebody, if they're hiring Trice, they get a woman-owned business. Well, they're also helping other women-owned businesses you know, throughout the supply chain and they don't even realize it, but that's been something that's been important for me to make sure that we're inclusive that way. I, I love what you said, Stephanie. And I, and I'm, you know, I'm always thinking about how do we get that message out to our prospects and companies that by hiring a woman owned business, they get all these other benefits, right. And they're making an impact um, that normally they won't be. And I, I still feel like that's such a, strong message that really just hasn't been put out there. And I, I'd love to be a part of making that the case. And, you know, oftentimes when we're talking to large corporations or, or um, even small mid-sized businesses, people are just looking at what's the service, what's the price, you know, I, I'm, and, and maybe that's something that's within us that, that, or within me where um I'm not sure that there's a lot of value for them to hear and understand and appreciate what is it like to work with a minority owned business. Um, and, and I would just love to put that message out there for people and to really consider that when you're choosing a supplier, because it's very important, you know, and many yeah. levels. I think like if we, if, you know, even hiring people from, like I told you, I work with Upwardly Global, right? We had a gentleman that we hired and it was the first time he had ever seen his dad cry. And I, we asked him why. And he said, because he's the first person in his family to ever get a job in like an office. Everyone else has been like in fast food mechanics and stuff like that. Um, so even by small business and the, the vendors that we work with or clients that we work with by hiring us we're changing the world like one person at a time, right? And making that impact because now this gentleman, not only did he get into the tech industry, but he now married a woman that's in the tech industry. He was able to move out of state, get a job in tech. It's, it changes the landscape in general, of everyone in our world, you know, and, and not to say that any of those other jobs are less than that. But if there are people who have these dreams and, it, all they need is the opportunities. It's up to us to really get out there and find them and help them reach those. And uh, the clients that we work with, they're by doing business with us, they're helping us to be able to do that. I'm going to segue to the vote because if you can create those kind of communities and such a passion for change, how does that translate to the importance of voting? And do you see that as part of your, your responsibility as a CEO? I, I think it's critical. 
for women to vote. It's, it's almost criminal for women not to vote. I think it's Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State, who had that famous line that uh, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Well, the women who don't vote are there too. So I, you know, I think it's, it's absolutely one of the most important things that we do and that we have to encourage young women to vote. We have to encourage people on our teams to go out and vote. And it doesn't matter how you vote, it's that you vote. And, and that's the important message. But what I also think is that when you're in the corner office, like we are, that it's not enough to just vote, that we should encourage and support women candidates, uh, women who are running for office, and that we host and participate in fundraisers for them and then support them once they're in office. So from that corner office and as CEOs of our business, I think we have to do voting uh, as a minimum. So when you try to encourage people to vote, how do you do that? Is it easy? Is it hard? What do you think, Joanna? Yeah, you know, I think like, again, I go back to, you know, do you sit there and wait for things to happen or do you actually do something about it and you're part of the change? And I think as leaders and in, in, in our companies, we have to do things like having conversations around it, giving people time off to go and vote. So they're not feeling pressured that they have to get their projects done, really encouraging it. So they, they, they don't feel like, oh, gosh, I'm out of sick days or vacation days and now I have to vote. So I'm not going to vote because I don't have any time off and my boss is going to get mad at me. Right. So it's really having conversations around it, talking about how important it is, like really just simple things and then giving them the time and the ability and even like kind of having fun with it where you prep and say it's voting day and you send out an internal, a lot of people do external marketing campaigns. And I think there's an opportunity to do internal marketing campaigns that voting time and, and, and here, this is what you get if you go vote. And if you turn in your sticker Um, you get this, you know, gift card and stuff like that. Even little things I think could really help young people need to learn to, to do that and and realize the importance of it. And especially in tech for me, I I mean, a lot of my people are in their twenties and to them, it's like, well, who cares? Does my vote really matter? So encouraging them as leaders and, and, and me being 45 and the senior member of my staff, believe it or not, (laughs) I think is really important. You hit on something really important and the Foundation did a study and it said one of the major reasons people don't vote is they just don't think it matters. How do you get that message across? You each clearly feel strongly about it. Do you talk about it in Zoom calls? Do you send out emails? What do you do to to help those young people know that it does matter. Stephanie, I don't know about you, but I have uh, never been in the situation. So I think the question is what can we do, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that we haven't done before because being in this circumstance and uh, you know, Stephanie, I don't know about you, but I do um, my quarterly company meetings and touch points via Zoom and my whole staff gets on the call. So I think for me, you know, just kind of being inspired, Ellen, but what you're asking and saying, I'm going to, hold a uh, special meeting via Zoom or Teams with my entire staff and and do something fun around this uh, to encourage everyone because it's so important. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a different environment now. 
And, uh, you know, our teams are working remote. I, I think there's great opportunity for us to include this as part of the regular agenda. You know, right now we're at the halfway mark for the, the two political conventions this year. And I think this is very timely to start talking about it. I think uh, we can share some information regarding how to vote, point people to find out where their polling places are. Because like you, I have a number of young people who are part of the team. I think hearing it, and because these are things that impact our businesses, it's not just political ideology. This has real impact. If, you know, whether we get an infrastructure bill is important to what kind of work Trice Construction uh, may have opportunity to compete for two, three, four, five years down the road. So I think some education is a good part of that. You know, before now, I don't think I would have done because we could just kind of talk about it around getting coffee. We have to be very, very intentional about it. And I think the pandemic has brought that change as well as all of the other uh, social changes uh, that we're seeing. I think it's even more important now to talk about it. So Stephanie, you're a lawyer. You understand where lines are. How do you talk about participation without talking about politics? It's a really fine line, right, that, that, you, that you bring up. Because, you know, I came up, uh, I remember my father telling me before I took my first job, you, you don't talk about religion or politics in the workplace, right? You just, you don't do it. So I think that the conversation has to be directed away necessarily from partisan politics to certainly for us, it's an industry interest. But I think the civic responsibility is something that we can and should talk about with people in the workplace. You know, you think about the last four years, you think about the midterm elections and how people don't don't go back out to vote. And I, and young people, I think, just kind of abandoned the whole process. Stay off the politics directly, not party, but civic engagement and civic responsibility. I think it's a better way to do that. But people are a lot freer uh, than when I entered my career and some 30 years ago about talking and debating politics. So I listen to young people. So I would never get in the way of that kind of discussion, but I wouldn't lead that discussion. I'm, I'm glad to have it, but making sure that we understand that as a, as a CEO, I'm not suggesting how to vote or where to vote, but looking at, okay, who's supporting our interests. You know, we've, we've had letter writing campaigns to legislators when there's been important legislation pending uh, in the state government about things that impact construction or impact insurance and other things that will affect how and what we do. And so I think that, that part of it is part of the education, if you will, for our, for our younger people in particular to understand why what they do matters. Joanna, you, what about you? Your workforce is online all the time. How do you bring the civic conversation on their screens or their phones? Well, I mean, to be totally transparent, we, we don't today um, as much as maybe we should, but as we're talking, I think one thought that comes to my mind is that, you know, we're part of the SBAC, Small Business Advocacy Council. 
And I think it's important while kind of maybe even to Stephanie's point a little bit, what her father um, taught her is sort of what I've been taught too, right? I don't know that I want to be the advocate for those conversations from my staff. I certainly want to encourage it by the things that I mentioned earlier, letting people know that it's important for all of us and taking days off and things like that, or giving them time to do that, and even bringing up the topic of a small conversation. But I think it would be very helpful to have someone from one of those advocacy councils or just that um, is a third party that could come in and educate our staff on why that is so important and what does that really mean and what impact does it have. Uh, So I think that would be a, a really important part and, and, and so I would also challenge the people who are listening to this podcast to think about what they're doing in their organizations and how they're planning to kind of balance, right, being a leader and also um, being an advocate for voting and civic engagement and those types of things. So I guess the question is, can you be an advocate for the process without necessarily being an advocate for a party. Can you do that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what um, Joanna and I are, are suggesting here. It's not who you vote right. for, but it's that you vote. That's right. That's, that's the important thing. Another um, finding of the Knight Foundation study is that sometimes people don't vote because they, they feel like they're not qualified. They don't know enough about what's going on. They would rather not vote than vote for somebody they don't know. And, you know, I think we've all had that experience, or at least I have, of when you go down this very long ballot and then you get to this portion and you're like, I have no idea. How, how do you help educate your colleagues? And also, or maybe I should say first, how do you educate yourself? I'm a big reader, so not so much watching all of the uh, newscasts and talking heads, but trying to dig into policy positions. I think uh, the other way to educate ourselves, too, is be involved in policy groups that are publishing, whether it's white papers or other things that uh, can help direct and understand who's supporting what uh, that's important to us and important to our communities. So you're right, it's it's a process and there's information coming from all over the place <laughs> to do that. And of course, now we find that so much is, is so partisan. How do you find those things that are just generally informational? So I know I struggle with uh, getting to all of that information. You got to read a lot of things and balance it out and follow up and check and do your own research. I'm not sure many people do that. And being able to encourage that with others, I think it's, it's, it's tough. For me, you know, one of the things I, I, I happen to be in the Goldman Sachs 10,000 small business program. And uh, one of my cohorts was a gentleman, uh, Dennis Deer, who is now um, here, part of our community as the local leader. And so I am not going to go into what in kind of where he's at or what his role is. But what I wanted to say is like having like coffee even with our uh, local, you know, maybe congressman or 
um, whatever politicians that that here maybe we know through friends or family or programs that we're into. Also, like I mentioned, the SBAC being a part of like that kind of network and organization. It's it's not a lot of money to join those organizations, but they're really uh, they're making a big impact of change. And um, in our communities and all the policy changes for small business. And I think it's just important to, you know, outside of reading is to get to know your local individuals and or organizations that are part of those kind of changes. So that, that would be my advice, I guess, for all of you guys. So my question is, you speak about small business advocacy. And Stephanie, you talk a lot about industry groups and policies. Do you share that, and if so, how, with your colleagues at work? Do they also have that exposure? How does it go from your office or your house now to, to theirs? You know, it goes via email, right? Here's, here's something of interest that's impacting our industry. Uh, here's something you may want to read about. Every now and then I may uh, invite a team member to join me. Uh, for a meeting where someone's speaking. So I think giving people the opportunities, and, and I'm sure people are doing these things on their own, but uh, from our corner offices, I think we have the ability to uh, share that information with them. I liked uh, Joanna's idea, uh, I think, uh, earlier about you know inviting in a speaker here and there. That's not something we've done, but I tell you, you know, Zoom meetings are making it a lot more convenient for us to be able to engage people uh, better, in better ways. Yeah, and even like, you know, I mentioned, you know, Commissioner Dennis Deere, I don't know, you know, if everybody would be um, aligned with those political views, but, you know, I know he would be happy to do something like that. The SBAC, boy, they're, they're so willing and um, and I don't think they're looking at necessarily one side, but just looking at educating people. I think a lot of people have the same type of goals that we're talking about today of just getting individuals to go out there to vote, to, to support our economy, small business. And so it's really up to um, the business owners on what's important to them. And then obviously they can drive that within their cultures. It strikes me that often for business owners, especially small business owners, it might be more important to you who the local and or state officials are than even who is running the country. Do you make those connections? Yes, yes, we have to make those connections. You know, that's where the most important policy decisions are being made at that local and at that state level. Obviously, you know, influenced by federal funding and, and federal law, but you know, that's that's where it really gets made. So I found it very important to make sure that we're engaged with our state and local elected officials and uh, to get to know them and to be able to talk to them about issues. My state rep lives across the street from me, and he and I had a very lively discussion about insurance. Uh, when there was the major bill that was pen pending in the Illinois General Assembly. And I took a position on it that was different than the position he was taking. And I was pretty aggressive about, hey, you have to have the right business agenda. So 
uh, to Joanna's point, you absolutely have to build those relationships and get involved, you know, attend hearings in committee meetings. And the beauty of it now is we can dial into those things. They're open to the public and we can be in the room uh, while these things are going on. And, and even uh, when legislation is pending and there are hearings that are being held, you literally can state your position on those things and you can do it remotely, submit a witness slip. I, you know, I'm a proponent of a particular piece of legislation or I'm, I'm an opponent of it. These are things that we have already uh, at our fingertips that we can do if we were, if we were interested. And I'm, I'm huge about visiting with legislators, even those that you don't know, and to show up uh, with an agenda. Here's something that's important to me, important to my community, important to my business, my industry. And these are the kinds of, of things that I'd like to ask you to do. And not just visit with, hey, I just want to introduce myself and my business, but have a particular ask in mind and realize that you may have to be part of their support group, so to speak. They're not subject matter experts on everything. And to the extent that we can come, bring information, be available, you know, serve on a task force. You know, a lot of elected officials have task force, task forces on different issues. I've said on them, great way to have input and, and to be active and engaged. And Stephanie, so, to your point, I think they're looking to learn about small business and what are we experiencing on a day-to-day basis because that's not their role, right? So they're very open. You know, I think when I was younger, I thought that these people weren't um, accessible, but it's amazing what I'm learning, how accessible they are. And not only are they accessible, they want you to be involved. They invite you. They do like, you know, coffee meetings and and they come to your community organizations, even your aldermen, right? They want to hear from you. They want to be a part of it. That's why they're taking those jobs. Those are not easy jobs, right? So, um, and they certainly, I, I wouldn't say they're high, highest paying income jobs either. And so they're doing that because they're passionate about it. And they want you as the, especially business leaders, but just community, even people to um, to come and share education, information, and, and to all make that impact together. How do you make that time? You both have incredibly demanding jobs. You have other responsibilities. How do you do that? Well, you add hours into your day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's so important. I, it, it just has to be part of how you do business. It's not separate from your business. It's, it's part of what you do. So you have clients, uh, you have you know, your employees. These are important stakeholders in your business and in your community. So they have to be factored in just like you would, you know, meeting with, with your bankers. You know, I, I, I owe a phone call back to one of my elected officials. Um, and it's just those important things. You, you have to do it and you have to be visible and bring relevant information to those discussions. And uh, to Joanna's point earlier, they're happy to hear from you. And we just have to make that just part of the normal course of our operations. And I guess if they're not hearing from you, they're hearing from somebody else, right? Oh, absolutely. Look, other interest groups are out there. 
they're they're going to make those phone calls. They're going to send those emails. They're scheduling those visits. And if they don't hear from us, you know, our and our voices are silent, then they can't they can't make the best decisions because they don't have all the information. So it really is incumbent upon us to make sure they've got a balanced perspective because, you know, people with, you know, large dollars, you know, big budgets that are doing that kind of thing, uh, believe me, they're, they're out there. So we, we have to, you know, make sure that we're doing it. And if we can't do it all the time, being involved in those advocacy groups like Joanna talked about, you know, I'm familiar with the group uh, WIP, Women Impacting. Uh, public policy. So if we can't necessarily be boots on the ground, then sometimes we can write the check that's supporting other advocacy groups that are positioning the things that are important and critical to us as women. Joanna, when you talk to your young employees and they're telling you, yeah, it doesn't matter, what do you say? I ask them why it doesn't matter. And so I look for a response on what maybe is the story that they're running around in their head, right? And Ellen, I'm not going to say that I have a lot of these kind of conversations, but uh, interesting that you asked me that because it has come up. Um, it might not come up from everyone and some people just don't want to talk about it. And I want to be respectful of that because my job as a leader of my company is to make sure that I focus on my business, right? But this is a part of my business, as Stephanie was stating. And, and I ask them why just to really seek to understand and then to educate them on why it does matter. And, and, and it may be, my response may be very different based on who I talk to, right? It may be different um, if I talk to a woman or if I talk to a younger person and, and it's not necessarily about who you should vote for. It's a little bit more about going out there and getting education to find a passion and to love the, the desire to vote. And it means different things for everyone. And so my job really is to guide and lead, especially the young generation, to learn their own journey and why that may be important for them. Stephanie, what about you? When somebody says to you, you know, I'm just, what do you, what do you, you know, I'm giving you my all. I don't have time to vote. You know, I, it's, it's like any voting. If you don't vote, that's like a no vote. Right. And so given the time off, and I think especially in, um, in, in this election uh, cycle, I think it's going to be important for us to be very specific about that and, and make sure we're creating the space for that to happen. So, you know, I don't hear a lot of, maybe I have a little more activist uh, type of group (laughs) around me, Uh, but I don't hear a lot of that. It doesn't matter, but I have talked to young people says, oh, nobody cares. They don't hear. And that's always what I say. If you're not voting, then you're really allowing things to happen to you. And, and now you, you you don't earn the right to complain. And everybody wants that right, right? <laughs> yeah, but if you don't if you don't participate in the franchise, then you, you just you you can't talk about what's happening and what's not happening. I really think it's it's something where um, 
you know, we, we want to do it on moral grounds. We want them to do it because they believe in it. And I think they have to find their why. Yeah, that's what know, I for voting. They've got to find their why. And I don't think. Yes, that's exactly what I was saying is like, it's not us telling them why it's us asking them what is their why. I think you two have been amazing. Just to put some of this conversation into perspective, last presidential election, 100 million people didn't vote. More people didn't vote than voted for either of the candidates. So to your point, Stephanie, no one. If there's anything we can do to move that needle, but it's our responsibility to get them to vote. So I want to thank you both extraordinarily much um, for being open and honest and creating an engaged culture both in your companies and in your communities. You're, an, you're amazing role models. Thanks for listening to today's conversation. If you'd like to learn more about the WBDC's Raising Up the Vote campaign and about the power of voting to drive women's economic empowerment, please go to our website, wbdc.org backslash raising up the vote. We hope you will join us in this important effort to raise up the vote. This movement reminds us that we can and should and indeed must pick up our banner today in 2020 and continue to enact necessary change as we participate in this year's election and other elections to come. Make sure to look for more conversations from Make Your Mark podcast series, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Women Voting Inequality. And don't forget to join the movement at hashtag raise up the vote. And finally, get out there and vote on November 3rd. The Women's Business Development Center is a nationally recognized leader in the field of women's economic development. We're committed to supporting and accelerating business development and growth, targeting women and serving all diverse business owners to strengthen their impact in and impact on the economy. For additional information about the WBDC, please go to wbdc.org and thank you for listening.